0: Welcome to the Courageous Entrepreneur Show. This is the show that shares information and inspiration to help you break free from self-doubt, limiting beliefs, and disempowering patterns, and break through to create the thriving, successful business you dream of and deserve. I'm your host, Winnie Anderson. I interview entrepreneurs who've overcome amazing challenges to create success on their terms and experts who share insight and practical information that can help you move past your blocks and move forward with courage, confidence, and clarity. The show is available in both video and audio formats on a variety of platforms, including Apple Podcasts, formerly iTunes, on YouTube, on iHeartRadio, in the Google Play Store, and on my website at winnieanderson.com. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll share the show with others in your networks, and I hope you'll join my community. You can become a fan of the show on my site at winnieanderson.com slash fans, and when you do, you'll get episodes delivered right to your inbox. You'll also receive information, tips, and resources to help you come out of hiding, position, and pre-sell yourself as the unique solution provider you are, so you can profit from your expertise. You know, when I was in junior high and and high school, too, I dreamed of moving to Colorado. I was actually a huge John Denver fan at the time. I know that dates me. And listening to that music and learning about him, I was drawn to Colorado for its beauty. I also loved the idea of escaping from my mother, who abused me emotionally and psychologically. I used to imagine how fabulous it would be to start over in a place where to play on that line from the TV show Cheers' theme song, Nobody Knows Your Name. So when I met today's guest, who didn't just escape the way I dreamed of, but she went to a whole other country, I knew I had to learn more about her and have her on the show. So Dorit Sasson is an award-winning author, a book coach, a motivational speaker and her mission is to inspire and guide entrepreneurs, speakers, leaders, and aspiring authors who have a message and a purpose to share to find their courage, to tell their brand story in writing, and to make a positive impact on the world. She's currently working on her second memoir, Sand and Steel, The Spiritual Journey Home. Listen in as Dorit shares what led her to leave the United States. What drove her to join the military force of the country she went to? The biggest test of her courage while she was in the service? The reverse culture shock she experienced when she returned home to the United States? The similarities between being a resident in a foreign country trying to fit in and being a creative entrepreneur? How she learned to handle rejection as a writer? tips for deciding if writing a memoir is right for you, and some ideas on how to get started with elements of your story. Listen all the way to the end, and I'll share your reflection exercise and action step for this episode. All right, so welcome, Dorit. I'm so excited to have you here today. So you are obviously an author, you're a coach, right, which we'll hear more about. You are also a marketing and content strategist, right? But I want to take you back in the wayback machine and I'd like to go back to college and when you made this decision to join the Israel defense forces right what were you looking for that led you
1: there and what were you looking for that you thought you would find at the time I was really very aimless in college I was very, very unhappy and Peer pressure didn't make it any easier. Everybody that I was studying with at SUNY Albany, you know how college life can be so massive in that respect. I felt that it was very unfulfilling. and At the same time, I was having real deep thoughts about my relationship with Israel as, a, as far as a country that could give me more than what my mother could give me. This sounds maybe a little strange. But the summer previous to my sophomore year, I had volunteered on a kibbutz. And it was like the most eye-opening, exciting, and emotional time. If you've ever been abroad or you've gone to another place and all of a sudden you feel so liberated and so excited by all the possibilities, it just gives you this sense of freedom. And at the time, Israel was that kind of place. I have an Israeli father, so that obviously helped a little bit. But In all honesty, this was my decision and my decision alone. Nobody said, you have to go, Mm -hmm. don't go, this will happen to you. It was just a relationship issue with my mother that she wasn't giving me the emotional freedom, the the emotional um, space that I needed to make good choices in life. And by by that I mean she was just fearful as a person by a lot of things. She was very accomplished. She was a concert pianist, a child Mm -hmm. prodigy. But at the same time, she really didn't know how to really nurture me emotionally. And something about Israel, that country, had this great big energy about it. It was very transformative, and I was attracted to it. And from that point on, it was like one thing after another, I'm going to serve the IDF and then It will give me a little bit more rigor, but it will also make me feel more emotionally independent from my mother, who's so fearful of everything that I do.
0: Okay. Okay. That's, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, I had a certainly nowhere near that level of experience, but probably the only thing in my life that I can equate that to, and my God, the wandering. I mean, the feeling lost. I think it's almost a waste of... You know, not time, effort, and money to go to college when you, right. yeah, you're often so aimless, and you've got these talents that are starting to emerge, right? And you have these beliefs that, of course, are a young person's beliefs, and all these other beliefs, and nothing is really making sense. And and yeah, we often just kind of go, all right, well, maybe this is right, and you go, yeah. The, And nothing made
1: sense. It was literally at the time, it was nothing makes sense here. What am I doing here? Let me figure it out in another country. That was how I approached it.
0: Yeah, yeah. I went to New Orleans for four months for a uh, corporate assignment. And, you know, I never thought about the freedom that that gave me until you just said that. But you go, and now Corporate life was a little bit different than your trip. I had a, it was my history that got me there, right? It was my my story as a professional, but yeah, it was very liberating because I didn't know anybody, and it was almost a chance to to have this new start. So yeah, I can I can sort of relate to what you were, yeah. You were experiencing? Yeah. So so let's let's talk a, a little bit about that time period. Did you, you know, did you
1: did you really ultimately feel you found what you were looking for? My intention was to escape my mother. You know, that sounds right. very, very extreme. But those mm-hmm. were my circumstances that I was dealing with personally at the time. Yeah. And when you go to another place like New Orleans, your expectation is here. And what yeah. you actually see in reality is here. Right. right. So it's such a, you know, you're, you're going in with an expectation, not knowing how that's going to, eventually pan out and when I went to Israel I had like the university Hebrew I had the American Jewish I had the Israeli father but I didn't really know anything about the culture it's one thing to connect to Israel from here and support it as an American Jewish person Mm -hmm. but it's another thing to actually go and immerse yourself in the culture and then immerse yourself in a military environment so yes long story short or long answer short, I I came there knowing that it would give me this emotional fulfillment that I couldn't get from my mother. But at the other end, I traded off a whole country, a whole home, a whole culture and a whole mentality, and I had to figure out how to fit in. Obviously when you're 18, it's a little easier than when you are 46 and have kids, but at the same time, it was a challenge because I was dealing with a foreign mentality and the mindset was difficult and different and challenging and there were issues, but I was very hardcore. I was very like, I want to kick this and walk this and I want to do it and I want to make sure I prove to myself that, you know, leaving America was the right thing. So I, I really had this no-nonsense, determined, focused mentality. So anything that I learned along the way was like my expectations plus it was just so different than what I expected. Right. Yeah. So I, I didn't anticipate any of that. I didn't know what that feels like going in. You know, I did all the paperwork and all the bureaucracy from here. But to go in it's an experience to yeah you know, living an experience. And when you go in with that mindset of, you know, the only thing I could do that could help me really stay focused was like You know, whatever hurdle I encounter, whatever obstacle I deal with, I didn't have really a good connection to faith, but I was very determined in my body, my blood and my DNA. It's part of who I am. Okay. And so I was just like, this is, I'm going to rock this no matter what. And when I came in with that mentality, I was able to really push through obstacles that, you know, for somebody else who didn't have that determination would be much harder. But that... Determination really fueled me and said, okay, I'm a very determined person. This is who I am, and that's what I need. And so, yes, it did help me in the long run.
0: Yeah, and I think that that's one of the tremendous benefits of traveling in general and, and really immersing yourself in whatever environment you are, because, of course, there are regional differences around the country, and then, nothing like going to a foreign land and, and living there for any extended period of time and much more than even a vacation but i think even a vacation you can get a sense for it if you make an effort to truly experience the culture and experience life as those folks live it right it's, yeah it's it's amazing so you and you had dual citizenship Right, So that's what really allowed you, I guess, to be able to join the IDF. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because you didn't have to, right, when you went there. You could have just lived on, on the kibbutz, and but you were driven to, to join the IDF. How did that happen?
1: So under the Israel law of return, every Jew is automatically a citizen, providing that your mother is Jewish. That's how it works in okay. Israel. I was a immigrant, so I had under the law return all the immigrant rights. At the time, it was a very practical decision. It was like if you serve in the IDF and you're an immigrant, you get certain rights that America doesn't do to its citizens. It's a whole different thing. And under the Ministry of Absorption, which is the framework for all the immigrants. I would get three years of a paid bachelor's degree. I would get an extra stipend as an IDF solution. So I was like motivated by these benefits. And that kind of gave me this feeling of incentive. But more so, it was this feeling of service that really spoke to me that my mother didn't like. And she's like, volunteering is a waste of time. Why do you even bother? And, you know, when I was volunteering on the keep I was hitchhiking, something that female soldiers don't do anymore because of security. But at the time, it was very accepted and very okay. It was okay to to, to hitchhike. And I just would eye these soldiers, and, I was, and that's the opening scene in my memoir, is the the mm-hmm. memoir starts with me hitchhiking, right. and I'm going to the kibbutz, and I'm like, wow, and eyeing them from a perspective as a volunteer, knowing that I'm going to go shortly back to my home country, and there's something about them that speaks to me, you know, this whole idea of giving up your country to serve in another country. I felt like, you know, here in America, we, we don't have this close proximity to our soldiers the way that Israel does. And it was so accessible at the moment. Seeing these soldiers, I mean, literally every other civilian is a soldier. It's, it's how the country is wired. There are only, you know, six million, so you have to imagine how many of those millions are soldiers. And so, you know, you, you turn to the person in the supermarket, there's a soldier. You go on the bus, there's a soldier. You're on the train station, there's a soldier, soldiers, soldiers, soldiers. And so it was just like, you know, it was like, wow, this whole country speaks to me. Everything about it speaks to me, the service, the the sacrifice, the, the idea that somebody – carries a gun and is protecting you spoke to me. There was something that I couldn't nothing compared to my American life to this. And I that spoke to me so deeply. And that was the motivation for signing up and enlisting. I didn't have to volunteer I didn't have to serve. Okay. I was just a volunteer, but that moment was a turning point.
0: Yeah. Wow. And i mean there're just so many experiences there emotionally as well as cognitively and that i can't think of a of a greater step that is the polar opposite of living with a mother who's fearful about every aspect of life which is so sad and then to go and and join the service and and be exposed in that way through service, I mean, there's just to me that's the, that's to me is one of the ultimates of courage that these people who stand up and protect everyone else in any country, police right. for that matter, who you know, and first responders who do that sort of thing, just right. a, an amazing turnaround from that kind of of experience and the and I can hear and I certainly read in your memoir the power that the personal power that i think you then feel would you say that's true yes and and uh, then
1: you know because it it's not like an individual personal power once you become part of this idf mentality you're part of a collective you okay. never feel alone you always feel that like the country has your back the way the country is set up culturally is that you can't really live in your own head for a very short period of time. Here in America we can go on retreats and feel solitude and we can even be anonymous and people just take that for granted. In Israel you're under constant threats so people are, you know, you have pauses in life or the day where things are a little quieter. But as a whole the country is a very vocal country, it's it's a very verbal country, it's a very socially active country. It's a very proud country. It's a very strong country, and it gets manifested in the relationships and the way okay. people interact with each other. It, there's, there's, you know, you could be an introvert, but the whole country as a whole is very extroverted. Okay. They're very, um, you know, if somebody has a problem on the bus, everybody wants to help. That kind okay. of mentality. Everybody's kind of wired. Yeah, Your help, the social benefit, or the fabric of the country, it's a whole different mentality than America, mainly because of our geographical you mm-hmm. know, proximities from each other. You know, right. I could be talking to you on a podcast and feel connected to you, but do I really feel connected to you? Like right. that kind of thing. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Fascinating, really fascinating. So what, what was service like for you? Did you actually see combat, or, or were you providing support? What kind of work did you do?
1: So at the time, women didn't really have combat units like they have today. Right, right. At the time, it was just if you're going to be serving in the idea, the typical job for a woman was to make coffee and be a secretary and serve coffee to the bosses <laughs> So or be a clerk. So that's what I did. I was a records clerk, but the, the job itself was traveling from base to base. Doing military work combined with agrarian work on on kibbutzim, which is plural for kibbutzes. Okay. And basically, we would go to different military bases, usually on the border. So once, what once was one was near the Lebanese border. The second one was near the Syrian border, and the third base was in Gaza, in okay. in uh, the um, uh, near um, the occupied territory. So basically, uh, my job was to record soldiers as they came into the base this is again pre-internet right everything was with pen paper and ruler this is like 25 years ago you know marking soldiers who left the base with a ruler and writing it on carbon paper and then marking them off you know and exiting them out and it was just an in and out sort of thing and that was one part of the service and then the other part was working in a socialized kind of environment on kibbutzim, tomato fields with the children in the dining room when the kibbutz was really a communal framework when okay. it worked like that kind of environment. Okay. So what
0: do you think was the biggest test of your courage while you were in the service?
1: I would have to say if you had if I had to rank this, the biggest test was having to cope with all the different all the different foreign mentalities of all the immigrants that we served in. I opted as a returning Israeli or as an Israeli citizen slash American immigrant. I said, hey, I want the slash quote unquote easy life. So I went to serve in a cohort or nucleus group of IDF foreign recruits, all different immigrants like me. And had I gone to the real hardcore with serve with native born Israelis, I felt like I needed a little bit of a cushion because I was like, hey, this is really hardcore. I'm just arrived in this country and I'm due to get inducted in three weeks. I need somebody who thinks like me, somebody who's kind of in my shoes, knows what it like, knows what it's like to be an immigrant. And that spoke to me. But because we were so different and we didn't really have much leadership. We were at odds with each other, and I was constantly tested. And so there are different chapters in the book that yes. have me deal with situations. My character has to deal with different sort of situations that test my ability yeah. to be strong. I At one point, I was literally going to you know, hop on a plane and go back to America because, obviously, it was just so horrendous and so hard that even for an 18- or 19-year-old Israeli, it would be hard. So I I I had to stick out a lot of um, courage in those situations.
0: Yeah. So. How do you think those lessons learned serve you today?
1: Yeah. You know, it's hard to remember being called out as a goofy American. Those eighteen-year-olds that would call me out and say, "I want to throw Doree out of this group. What she should go back to America." That made me feel like shame, you know? I feel shame. Why am I even here or extremely vulnerable? Or you're calling me out on something that I may have felt or may have been mocked or bullied in high school or something. And although I'm not 18 anymore, thank goodness, I think that the big part of me is always being able to trust that whatever it is that I'm doing at the moment is for a reason, you know, and to believe that even if somebody bullied me, I have to still stick to my guts and believe. It's called persistence, basically. And I had to continually ride this roller coaster of persistence. And each time I was tested, you know, how much do you really want this? How much do you Mm -hmm. want to help people write their books? How much do you really want to help people really, um, uh, cope with their fears when they're writing. All of those things. It's the same kind of thoughts or voices that I would ask myself when I was there. How much yeah. do I really want to remind me? Why am I serving in the idea? Yeah. And it, it. I think the basic thing is it. Even though we were so close to each other and we served so much to each other with each other, it was always going back to the mindset of unity and the individual and the power of one because no matter how many people I was serving alongside with, or how many people I was connected with, or how many people didn't like me, or how many people hated me, I always had to <clears throat> remember I'm you know, here and my purpose. And, and, and that was tough because nobody in America called me out like they called me out in Israel. And I was like, mm-hmm. all of a sudden, all of these horrible new experiences are happening, and nobody in America would dare to say To somebody who came, you know, from New York City, which is already kind of like a a tough environment, well, you're a goofy American. Nobody would call me a goofy, you know, friends maybe, you know, but not people that I didn't know and I didn't grow up with. We were strangers, and all of a sudden I would be called out on this and this and this and this and this. And and I'm like, I have to be with you guys for two and a half years, (laughs) and you're calling me out on names that nobody ever called me out. Like, it was a real test to see how how can i do this and so when you're not you didn't grow up with these people and you have to stick with them for almost two years and eight months it's a real journey
0: yeah and i think that speaks to a lot of things that i made a couple of notes while you were talking especially about this issue of shame and uh, i think all of that speaks to what we can feel like as entrepreneurs and and even worse as a creative entrepreneur And and that feeling of isolation and sometimes feeling of shame when what we create doesn't have the impact maybe that we thought it would or hoped it would. And so, yeah, I, I was talking to some other entrepreneurs just last week, and we were talking about this issue of shame and how it's probably something that's not talked about very much among solo professionals, but it's there. And and it can be incredibly painful, especially when we're so isolated. You know, social media and this kind of thing, you know, makes us feel like we're all connected, and that's true. But it's like being feeling alone when you're in a group. There's something about it that still I don't see you every day. We just met, and and there's there can be a sense of I'm in this by myself.
1: Yes, so, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And that can create a feeling that I'm not well uh, well understood. I'm even misunderstood. Right.
0: right.
1: Yeah. So let's talk
0: about this issue of, of being a creative entrepreneur in a that's certainly a courageous life in itself. And and we'll talk specifically about your book in just a second, but how, you know, how do you manage to get past the fears and doubts that come with that territory?
1: Yeah, I mean it's it's so relevant to what I just talked about but it's even more relevant as I'm living it because it's mm-hmm. a story that I'm living and I'm living as I'm telling it. And so that's the that's the piece that I walk. I walk the talk and I talk the walk. The other memoir that I'm writing is about leaving Israel to come to the United States. And it's all about well why do I leave a country that I You know, got married to almost for 20 years, and now I'm coming back as an American and dealing with what we call by uh, the US Department of State as reverse culture shock. Reverse culture shock is not as common as culture shock. Many Americans or many people know what culture shock is. Even when you go to another state, you're in culture shock. Mm -hmm. But reverse culture shock is a higher level of stress. And by coming to grips with this idea of Hey, I'm I'm you know in this boat alone and I'm struggling as a returning American and nothing in this country speaks to me anymore, and I don't even know what target is, you know. I can extend that idea, that second idea that I'm writing on about for my memoir, Sand and Steel, the spiritual journey home. And I can extend that idea to finding a home when you're working creatively. And the biggest takeaway that I can suggest to anybody listening to this to you to myself as a reminder is that you're you're always out there with support there are always people there that can connect but when I first came to this country 10 years ago and this was again involuntary if, you, if, if anybody would like to check out what I'm doing it's all about um, publishing this through um, a group called Publicizer so I'm looking to get more pre-orders for the the book that I'm writing but the whole premise was I'm sitting in the coffee shop giving voice to my story and I keep asking myself who is going to read this. And I connect to them, my target audience and I keep saying to myself there are people out there who have problems with finding a home there are people out there who are struggling to find their tribe. Mm-hmm. And every time I talk about this book with people they're like, "Oh, I can think of people in prison who when they get released, they're all of a sudden in culture shock." I can think of XYZ and I'm like, "Hey, this is This is my voice telling me I'm not good enough. This is my voice telling me, hey, maybe your story is just weird and wacko and it's all yours. That's that's what shame does to you. It makes Mm -hmm. you feel like you have um, a very limited amount of things that you have to offer. And if if you push yourself in a different way, it might turn people off. But that's our brain wiring. And I'm almost convinced that every time I put down a negative thought or self-doubt starts to enter, I always have to remember this person said this, and this person said that, and this person said this. So my point here is that, number one, there are people out there who need this kind of help. There are people out there who need somebody like a creative entrepreneur to guide them and get them out of their tunnel thinking because they haven't been able to make – progress because they've been thinking or trained to think this is the way to do it. And if this doesn't work, this doesn't work. And creativity doesn't get the attention that it needs today. And sometimes those are better answers or or they offer a better answer because of that um, more open or fluid way of thinking. And when we don't open ourselves to that kind of creativity, we shut ourselves down. We really do. And in my case, I'm like, no, nobody wants to read this book, nobody cares, or nobody really needs somebody to help them build their platform, nobody cares, and that's not productive because it just doesn't give you the sense of connection that having a community, having a tribe, having a connection with your higher power can do. Does that make sense?
0: It, it does make sense, and we could go on for days just right. talking about all that. I, I right. really do. It really does resonate with me, and I and it makes complete sense. So let's talk about how you even got into writing and, and talk a little bit about right. what you do. When when you left, there was, in that time period, and I, I don't remember the exact date, but there was a, a young woman. Her name was – I'm going to probably screw up her last name. Her name first name was Tanya Ebby. Um, A.B. A.B. Uh, yes. She made headlines because she sailed around the world as a very young girl. Now, did did you see that story? And I think it's part of what what maybe planted the seed, did it, in it that you would write a book yourself? Or was this just something that you decided you had to do when you got home? I'd love
1: to know how you decided to tell your story. Well, first of all, it was my father who held up the clipping. And he said, see, this is what it means to travel the world one day. Yeah. And she and then I had to read the fine print and the headlines on the and the captions underneath said that she is planning on writing a book one day. So my father, by virtue of my father holding this, it was kind of like I have to prove something to him. Okay. And then the second person, because he's the more rational of my of my parents. And then the second thing was Tanya Aby is rocking the world around with a small little boat and she's gonna write a book and I was like well hey if she can do something like that then why (laughs) can't I do something like that because I I got lots of red marks in high school I wanna prove all those red mark people wrong I don't wanna see myself you know it was all about I wanna prove you wrong and I wanna prove this person wrong I wanted to do that I was like on that trajectory so that's how it started but I mean to write a memoir to say you want to write a memoir and then actually write a memoir, that's a whole different ballgame. It
0: is a different ballgame, and uh, I love the I want to prove the, the red mark people wrong. I think that, it, you know, if I had one thing that I could do differently, it would be to go back and tap on the head these people who are so rigid and and teach these rigid rules because, as we know, you don't necessarily need to follow them when you, certainly not when you write copy, but it, it, when you're writing your own story, enough already with the, you can't end your sentence in a preposition and all that stuff. So amen, the end of, of red marks. Um, let's talk about this issue of, of writing and, and writing a, a memoir and just writing in general. There's this huge issue of this fear of rejection. Right, You experienced some of that tied with the shame when people would call you out. And that's, that's a level of, of rejection, I think, with saying there's something different and wrong with you that makes you not part of us. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you deal with rejection or how you help others deal with rejection as they start to tell their own story?
1: Well, I just wrote a blog post on this and posted it to my blog called Giving Voice to Your Courage. <clears throat> And, and the whole premise is, because I'm crowdfunding this, rejection is part of the game. And I learned from that experience, and I'm still crowdfunding this, and, and I'm in the midst of it. What I've learned already, and I'll just give you the gist of that blog post, was that I learned to just look at this as, as a game, as a game. And not, you know, and let's let's see what happens if I come without any expectations, and i just do it for the exercise and detach myself from the outcome what will happen now this this came from an idea that i was checking out from a tedx talk about a guy i, I i'm sorry i can't remember the name but it was a foreign sounding name i think jia june or something like that and he basically did like really extreme things he went to the neighbor and said can i plant a flower in your garden, or he went to a security guard and said, do you have a hundred dollars you can give me? Or can you, or somebody else, can you sign this notary for me? Cause I can't sign. You know, like all these things. And he said, from that experience, and he did a whole TEDx talk around it and it was fascinating. He learned that it was just to, to embrace it as a game and to not even, and, and when you look at it that way and you embrace it that way, then it becomes a little less of, of pressure and just kind of, Take the pressure off. I think the best thing for me was to just say, "I'm writing this book for myself. I'm writing it for myself, and I'm not writing it for this person, and this person, and this person." And there's a wonderful book I'm reading right now called "Fearless Writing" by William Knoer. I hope I'm pronouncing that name correctly. Okay. And I just bought it off from Amazon. And he also reverberates that same wonderful golden idea: if you can turn off the voices and say, "I'm writing this for myself." then it's so much more liberating yeah. than than having to say, I'm writing it for an agent. Oh, and, and if the agent doesn't like it, then I guess I'm a bad writer. You know, there's yep. a whole different um, music that you play in your head when you say, I'm writing this for myself versus I'm going to write this for an agent so I can get a publishing deal. But then what happens if the agent declines or the publisher doesn't like it? Then you red mark yourself all throughout life, and that's how you go through life thinking. What if you wrote your book just for yourself?
0: Yeah, that's that's a great question to ask yourself, and certainly a great focus to have. And as I'm listening to you, it really I don't think we can reasonably expect there not to be some level of rejection connected to our work if. You're somebody who believes that the world's created in balance, right? We know that every front has a back. Every up has a down. It's just the way the world is made, right? It's the way the universe is made. So for there to be approval, there must be disapproval. For there to be acceptance, there must be rejection. So if you can accept this as just part of the process, and yes, I love the concept of detaching from the outcome. That, for me, I must have read it 15 times at least in Think and Grow Rich, which is where I first saw that phrase, detached from the outcome. And and honestly, 15 times I think I read that book until it finally dawned on me what this guy was talking about, and it's taking away the emotional connection. I am not less than if you don't like what I wrote. Exactly, and you're not less than if I don't like what you wrote. Right? It's it's just it's it's facts, it's data. It's n- there is no emotional connection to this. So yeah, that's, that's I, I think a that's a really powerful.
1: too. It's a great takeaway. But I think a person to to get to that understanding, they have to go through an experience. You do. It's painful. And and I think that the greatest. Ch- experience for a, a writer is that experience of becoming an author and the way and even if you connect with one person you're mm-hmm. an author yes one person is all that it takes and if so, i read somebody's work and i say i love it and that person had been shot down by multiple agencies and um and multiple publishers and somebody loves it that that we're, we're always aiming for masses and masses and masses and to and, and we forget the power of one, what, what does that feel like? For somebody to say, I loved your story. They took the time to email you, and they said, I loved your story. That means there's an emotional connection being met. So at the same time, to remove yourself from emotion, yes, at the same time it plays out differently in the way it responds. So if one person connects, that energy of transfer from one to another, I wrote the book, I published it, now you're reading it. You're a reader having an experience with my words and my ideas and my thoughts. And what happened to you? Oh, my God, that tears you apart or it blows you up or it pulls right. you together or whatever it is. And then you email that person back. And Some people, they take the time to email, and it's amazing. Or they write a letter, a physical letter, which yes. is even more mind-boggling. Crazy. yeah. You told me now you love my book. Wow, I don't even know where this came from. You know, like that's the experience that we need to remember, that we don't write for masses, we write for ourselves. And if we're lucky, we'll get one person to say, I loved your book. That should count for something. You should hold those readers very dear to our hearts and say, thank you so much. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for connecting with me. Because, you know, it takes a lot of effort to write a story. It's not so easy.
0: No, it's not. Excellent. So let's talk a little bit about the writing a memoir. Right. Does everybody have a story? Does then does is then everyone should write their story? How how does somebody know their story, the whole story, not just a little snippet as an illustration for something? How do you know that that your story is worth is really worth telling and publishing?
1: Very good question, and the question that I get asked a lot each time that somebody comes to me, a client prospect or whatever, whoever says, I want to write the story. So the first thing that we work on is distinguishing between an incident, right, and a full-fledged story. Okay. And it's very ambitious to write a memoir. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I ask them, you know, we can always write your story by publishing a, or sending off a personal essay. It doesn't always have to be a full-fledged 200-page memoir. It's very ambitious. Yeah. It's very time-consuming. It's mm-hmm. very committing. There's a lot of work involved, and there's a lot of issues of craft, and so I always try to, you know, I'm not trying to say, hey, I want a client. Go get me. Let me write your book for you, or let me right. help you, but it's, it, you know, it all boils down to how much, How do you see this as a story, and first of all, they don't know if if it's an incident, which is, hey, I went to this place and I bought a you know chocolate milk and then I had a coffee and then I met with a friend and those are incidents Mm -hmm. and and they sometimes read out like a story in the script but they're just incidents and and it's not that much of a story kernel there's no there's little kernels but they don't add up to a bigger story and that's what happens they come with that desire and then and then it takes them a time of working through the ideas to figure out what the bigger need is yeah,
0: and I, I I like that reminder that it's okay to write an essay yep. that because that one particular incident may have some kind of life-changing impact on you. And I find that writing also helps us all process these big experiences as well. And that's probably something that the the person who's just decided to start writing probably is not thinking about the emotional unrest that happens when you start chronicling your journey, whether you do it in individual essays or you decide I'm going to write this entire book. There's a lot of you start opening drawers and peeking in closets and crap falls
1: out. It, it you got to be ready. You've got to be ready. And that's why I say Write an incident that has a personal implication that you can relate to on an on a essay okay. level, and, that, and then that tests, and then you test the idea, and you see how many people resonate with it, and you right. see how many people are communicating with you around it. and it becomes a, a conversation between you and the writing and and it it's a lot more meaningful that way and then you can see how more motivated you are maybe it, it this is just one li- maybe you publish a collection of essays there you go maybe you know that that's one possibility yeah. maybe you're only meant to write this one essay and then connect it to a bigger idea there are just so many ways to to do these yeah. things yeah. but the first thing is to just imagine what this might feel like and look like and, and think of the possibilities. And that's where the, the fun part starts. Yeah, that's
0: that's brilliant. I love the idea of a collection of essays. You know, for someone who maybe you're a professional and you have ten principles of whatever, you probably do have something in your life that helped you come up with that belief that is now a principle, a guiding principle, maybe yeah. through your work. And starting out with an essay for each one of those principles, before you know it, you have a whole book, that is
1: exactly. your principles and background. That's, ooh, that's a great idea. Yeah. Awesome. And then you can turn it into something practical. Maybe right. there's a takeaway for each essay. Maybe you want to write guiding questions for each idea and have it under a theme or an umbrella. I mean, those are very strong yeah. possibilities. And today's reader, they want things short. They don't want 300-page books like what, what was printed 30 years ago. They're okay. they're looking for the essence because that's what we have in our brain capacity today. We have 20 minutes, right. that's all we have, and sometimes those are really good time, you know, uh, fillers.
0: Yeah, yeah. And and actually, uh, for the, the person who wants to, to write, that is is actually a plus because it gives you an incentive to then create a series of consumable series, right? And really feel like you're connecting with people and guiding them, truly guiding them through whatever it is that that you're sharing. Dory, I could go on for days with Yay! Love you, love you, love, I love this you information. Too.
1: You have so many good things about what you're Thank doing. You. And it's,
0: it's Thank so you. Thank to
1: you. Listen to you.
0: Thank you very much. So let's let everybody know about the specific work that you really do with folks and then where they can go to learn more
1: about you and and check you out. So Check Check us out. Yeah. So I do a lot of work with platform building, and this is a very fancy word for, and this is a very, an industry-used word for getting your work out and getting your name out about what it is that you do. So, if you're a podcaster, or you're a speaker, or you're an author, or you're a small business owner, or you're an entrepreneur, anybody who has the service of, of a service-based clientele that you speak to, or you you, you train with, or you train to. And so, um, my real gift is helping, and I use my teaching to help me because I'm also an ESL instructor is I really break things down creatively for people to really get to this idea of what a platform is and why you even need one. And so much talk is around it and it's almost mind-boggling how many people write about it, but it doesn't get broken down that way. So my real job is to help people understand how to build it creatively, it meaning the platform, the, the place from which you are representing yourself. And so when you think of it, it's very abstract, Right. And then what you do on a daily basis and how you work through those little chunks of who you are and why people should listen to you. That's the work that I really love. So all of that love can be found on my website, really about giving voice to your courage under speaking and services. There's a tab there and it gives you a whole different runaround about the different types of services I offer to entrepreneurs who want to build a platform around whether it's a podcast that you're doing or a book or they're a speaker, things like that.
0: Basically, getting your message out and building an audience who is ready to receive it and, and act on it. Exactly. Fantastic. And, of course, we'll include links in the show notes to Dorit's site, her, her books on Amazon, and, and all of that kind of stuff so you can find that very easily. It's been a great pleasure. I could go on for days
1: with with you, and I look forward to seeing your next book, and uh, love talking to you. Thank you so much, Winnie. It was a real pleasure. I had a great time. I had a blast. Thanks. Well, I hope you found that helpful and as
0: interesting as I did. Dorit and her journey are really just amazing. If you liked this episode, I hope you'll leave a positive review of it on the platform where you consumed it, and please share it among your communities so others who would benefit from the show and this episode can receive it. You can get episodes sent right to your inbox each week when you become a fan of the show and join the community at my website, WinnieAnderson.com. When you do, you'll also receive articles, resources, and special offers on courses and other opportunities that will help you come out of hiding educate and inspire your potential clients while elevating yourself as the trusted advisor you are. You'll be able to move forward with courage, confidence, and clarity. Alright, so your reflection exercise. Man, there are so many directions I could take this in. It's kind of hard to decide on just one, so I'm going to give you a few. So First of all, I think you want to ask yourself, are you living in fear the way Dorit's mother was? How sad that really is so just think about that what would you do if you weren't afraid and and you know no matter what you were afraid of whether you're afraid of rejection or you're afraid that people will make fun of you or you're afraid that people will you know not pay any attention to you as you try to become a thought leader do you dream of and have the courage to truly change your life you know, that's a big question because there are a lot of people who say they want to be an entrepreneur, but then they discover just how hard it is. And they really don't want to do the stuff that's necessary to get your name known, to get out there, to put offers together, to invite people to take the next step. Do you dream of, of writing a book, of telling your story? You know, you can help others grow through the mistakes and obstacles that you've gotten around and the lessons that you've learned. So please don't minimize your life. As Dorit said, you may not have an entire memoir or you may not even want to write a memoir, but there are probably individual experiences that provide teachable moments for a reader who wouldn't be able to learn those if you didn't share them. Okay. So your action step. I want you to set a timer for 15 minutes and just start writing the things you know now that you wish you had known then. Write a list of things you've learned since you turned 40 or 50. Or maybe you have a list of things that you learned since you hit six figures. Whatever it is that you've got that are lessons or points that you've learned that you, know, you, you think somebody else might be interested in. Or try writing in some sort of a formula like the 10 commandments for success in you know, your clients industry segment or 10 commandments for success with a tool you use. Maybe it's 10 mistakes that people make or the 10 questions that people have about something that you do. Even if it's a hobby you know, never underestimate the power of passion. People who love their hobbies love their hobbies and want to read about them. They go on trips about them. So, you know, maybe you've got something that is a passion for you. My friend Sue Weeks just recently lost, launched a podcast called Stitchery Stories because stitchery, embroidery is one of her passions. It's a hobby for her and she's having great success with it because other people are also passionate about that hobby. So you could also do a list of big incidents that happened and the lessons you learned about them. So you could go through any point in your life and identify those kinds of lessons. What could you teach another person to save them the aggravation, the emotional wounding, anything that you've gotten out of that? Now, once the timer goes off, take a good look at the list. You've got the makings of at least an ebook or a special report. That's enough to get you going and to begin this new element of adding writer to your bio. And if you have. objective that you haven't been able to reach, a goal that you haven't been able to achieve, maybe you've been working on a book and you haven't been able to finish, or maybe you want to put together a course, or you know you want to put together a video series, so you can begin to stand out even though you hate standing out, and so you can start selling your services even though you hate selling, then I would encourage you to investigate the action takers group. The action takers group is a group of like-minded solo professionals who are all working to achieve their biggest goal and they are supporting each other, they're receiving daily coaching, and they're taking action every day in small steps to achieve their goal. You can learn more by going to winnieanderson.com slash action takers. And if you know you want to write a memoir, then visit Dorit's site at doritsasson.com. Thanks for being with me for The Courageous Entrepreneur. I'll be back with another episode soon. Until then, remember, you are worthy of all the success you dream of.